Hello and welcome to the Hacking State podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. With me today is Steve Shu. Steve Shu is a professor of theoretical physics at Michigan State University, as well as the founder of multiple startups, uh, currently Genomic Prediction, as well as Superfocus AI. He also hosts the Manifold podcast and the Information Processing blog. Steve, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Alex. It's good to good to have you. Um, so you actually occupy a number of uh, very exciting topics. Uh, I, I myself am working in tech at the moment, but you're also uh, doing a lot of interesting work with uh, polygenic screening uh, and genomics uh, with genomic prediction. Uh, and of course, uh, we share, uh, or well, I, we share an affiliation with my alma mater and, and your uh, employer, which is uh, Michigan State University. So we have a lot of things that I'd like to get into, but I thought we'd first start with uh, your work with genomic prediction, because I think there's a lot of questions around that. Um, I had received Khan on a few weeks back, uh, and we spoke a little bit about this stuff, but obviously it's not his area of expertise. He's a population geneticist, but you started this startup that is primarily focusing on um, uh, on polygenic screening and screening specifically for those uh trying to do embryo selection. So can you talk a little bit about what genomic prediction is is doing and sort of uh, how you got into that? Great. So genomic prediction is a tech startup. Uh, it's about, I think, almost six years old, over five years old now. And um, <clears throat> it's the leading company in genetic testing of embryos, which to most people sounds like an exotic thing. On the other hand, mm. if you're going through IVF, it's become pretty standard. So something like 70% of all embryos produced in IVF in the United States get some form of genetic screening or genetic testing. So sounds like a strange thing, but that's always the case with new technology. It's, it's, it's very uh, strange and exotic to most people, but for the people who really have skin in the game, like parents that are actually trying to have a kid, um, they get very rapidly introduced to this whole uh, set of technologies when they when they go through IVF. Um, now, uh, how did I get into it? Um, kind of a long story, but uh, I'll, I'll start. Uh, I'll give you a slightly compressed description, then you can you can drill down if you're more interested in that aspect of it. Sure. Um, around 2010, I got interested in computational genomics and. The reason I got interested primarily, it was a subject that I was interested in all the way back to undergrad. So when I was an undergrad at Caltech, they were already telling the physics majors like me, oh, physics is over, man. Like all the important questions have been answered. There's only a little bit left to do. Of course, this is totally untrue, but, but mm -hmm. this was the attitude people had. And um, you should go into molecular biology. Molecular biology is where all the action is. And so I did take some classes in molecular biology, and I was quite interested in things like evolution, natural selection, uh, DNA, DNA sequencing. But the technology was very, very primitive back then. And it wasn't until around 2000 that we sequenced the first human genome. And by about 2010, it was clear that it was getting cheaper and cheaper, and it was going to get very cheap eventually. And so around 2010, I was uh, as many physicists, especially theoretical physicists do, looking around for various research projects that, you know, my main focus might be elementary particle physics or cosmology or black holes, but 
um, a lot of physicists, they have a lot of intellectual bandwidth. And so mm. a lot of physicists are looking for little things that like, oh, maybe I should uh, work with this neuroscientist who's in the building next door and I play tennis with, or um, maybe I should get into computer science and cryptography or something. So I was looking around at different things that I could, you know, kind of do like kind of like Google 10% time-ish stuff on. Yeah. And I, I noticed that the rate of decrease in cost of genotyping was exponential. And so it was very mm -hmm. simple to do a kind of back of the envelope estimate and realize, wow, uh, very soon we'll be able to actually perform analyses that I would only dream of being able to perform back when I was an undergrad, but now we can actually do them or we will soon be able to do them. So that drew me into the subject and the aspect of it, which, you know, dovetails most nicely with um, my background in theoretical physics and in computation is specifically a kind of AI machine learning problem, which is if I show you data where you have the genotype, the DNA sequence of a bunch of individuals mm -hmm. and also have some phenotype information for each individual. Can you break the code? Can you have the AI learn yeah. how to predict phenotype from phenotype from genotype? And mm -hmm. so that, that's like a basic question. And in fact, most of what is said was said about DNA analysis and genomics you know, around the time when the first human genome was uh, sequenced, kind of confused all this stuff because people confused just reading out the DNA with solving this puzzle or breaking the code that links the state of DNA for an individual with observable phenotypic traits of that individual. And that problem is, is what we're solving literally right now. Yeah. Um, and in 2010, I realized we would have the data necessary to solve this kind of problem. And that's, that's what drew me in. And so genomic prediction, the startup was an outgrowth of something that kind of began as like a 10% time project that I was working on. And then I started collaborating with other researchers in genomics and behavior genetics and stuff like that. And then eventually it led to genomic prediction. So, so in a way you're solving a, you're using, you're using machine learning to solve a like stochastic decompression problem. Right by yeah. making the association between the genotype and the phenotype, your the the genotype uh, projects itself onto the phenotype, right? And whatever I, I'm not sure what uh, what the primary algorithms you were working with. I'm sure there was like clustering and classification and multiple variants of uh, trying to figure out how this works. But essentially, that's the core problem you're trying to solve: is what's the association between you know, like you said, cracking the code, this code and the projection of it, which is somewhat uh, influenced by the environment as well. But um, so the, the way the way I like to describe it is um, so, first of all, if you're if you're coming more from the electrical engineering side, then mm. one way to say this is imagine that there is a signal. And then add to that signal some noise. Right. OK. Or take the signal and transform it in a noisy way, mm -hmm. but then collect many samples where you have the basic parameters of the signal uh, and you have the uh, output. And the question is, can you invert the output? Can you invert the phenotype to then recover the actual mathematical formula that links the state of the DNA, which are the free parameters? 
to the actual signal. And so it, it's it, one way to think about it is an exercise in signal recovery. Mm -hmm. Another way to talk about it is just a pure problem in machine, in machine learning where, uh, or AI, where you're trying to learn a high dimensional function. Right. So, so the phenotype is a high dimensional function of some subset of the DNA states mm -hmm. uh, in a person, you know. And so either way, it's a, it's a, it's a, it can be mapped to a classic problem, uh, which, you know, there was a lot of uh, horsepower that had been invested in because for signal recovery, like they're doing things like uh, exploding things and sending seismic waves through the earth and then looking at the output of those, uh, those waves to try to reconstruct like, oh, where are the oil deposits under mm. the earth? Um, or they're trying to, you know, break a code. Like somebody has like, the right. original message and then a random one-time pad and then the actual transmitted uh information and the question is how do you invert that so the the problem of quote solving the dna code which is a really fundamental classic problem like i you i think to a biologist you know you, you can't say you quote solve the mystery of dna by just saying oh yeah I, okay i now i know this molecule is what's passed down uh mm. in reproduction but i don't actually know how the molecule encodes whether someone is going to have blue eyes or brown eyes. I don't know how the molecule encodes whether the person is going to be tall or short or have liver cancer. Um, until you finish, until you complete those last few steps, you, you have not actually understood like the role of DNA in, say, the biology of humans. So that mm. remained to be completed and it's still an ongoing project. But sure. um, from a theoretical perspective, certainly today, we, we know how to do this. And I would argue that the, the the resolution of all these problems is mainly data limited now. It's not actually limited by the, the power of the algorithms. We have good enough algorithms. And in some sense, we can, in some cases, we can improve the algorithms are close to optimal. So the main question is just the availability of data. So we need more data on more populations. Is that the uh, bottleneck? So there, there are a bunch of open problems, like, uh, for example, um, the population for which we have the most data are Europeans. Mm. There are aspects of the way you solve these problems, which um, make it such that the, the predictor that you build using European data doesn't work so well on East Asians or Africans. Right. Um, so, so one thing we need is more diverse samples. Mm. But even for like, even if you just want to solve like there's certain traits like height, for example, that has largely been solved for Europeans. I, my group was involved in this, but there are other traits like cognitive ability for which we just don't have enough labeled data. We probably have 10 or even, I don't know if a hundred might be an exaggeration, but I think we have many tens times more data where you have the height of the individual along with their genome than you have a cognitive measurement and the genome of the individual. So there's just a huge gap there. And mm. before we could build a good predictor for uh, cognitive ability, we need just need a lot more data. Even if you were just confining yourself to saying, I only want to solve it in the context of a European population. Mm, okay. Well, it's, it's interesting that height was, uh, height, height was so easily solved. I mean, it's very easy to measure, um, which is part of the reason why, uh, but um, I, I wanted to ask you, when we're talking about the phenotype, you're obviously talking about a lot of different traits, some of which are harder to measure than others, um, about uh, morphology. Because uh, I did an interview a while back um, with a young 
well now he's a um uh now he's a, a cognitive scientist but at the time he was an evolutionary anthropologist and um we were discussing rupert sheldrake and rupert sheldrake i don't know if you're familiar with him people have different opinions he's somewhat controversial um was a plant biologist who is interested in morphology and he had this idea that the morphology of plants comes out of um uh electromagnetic fields basically and that 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 like heavily informs the the morph morphological structure of the um of the ultimate organism um and so i was just wondering like how much about morphology does this tell you obviously height it's mostly salt. Yeah. So, so I can comment on that. So first of all, uh, when I said like you have the signal and then you have noise or maybe a noisy transformation of the signal, mm -hmm. obviously part of that noise is environmental noise, right? Yeah. And there could be some environmental noise, like, uh, what happened during the pregnancy or, um, you know, uh, things which you're never really going to get a full handle on, like very small fluctuations that are happening that no one's ever, no one's even trying to measure or couldn't possibly measure. Then there are like gross uh, environmental effects that you you could try. You could actually characterize like, oh, how much food did the kid get? Did the kid, he get enough vitamins? Did he get enough mm -hmm. minerals? Did he sleep enough? Did he get enough exercise? You know, those you can kind of, they're gross, mm -hmm. more gross environmental variables that maybe you could measure or control. And so no one is saying that these gross environmental uh, effects don't alter the phenotype in the end. They can alter the phenotype in the end. On the other hand, we might be averaging over them when we, when we, you know, if we have enough data, right? Right. So um, when we say like, quote, height is solved, what we really mean is, is that if you take a person who experienced generally good environment so that they had plenty of food they had a good childhood you know all those things then um as long as the environmental conditions were somewhat favorable hmm. the variation between individuals of that morphological trait is yeah. largely genetic what's left is largely genetic okay i, I have a question so, about about this term good so yeah my, my understanding so there are certain traits like intelligence for example my understanding of the field of intelligence is that essentially there's almost no interventions that we know of besides basic you know nutrition and health and uh exposure to stimulus um that reliably increases intelligence in humans right and so when we talk about a trait like intelligence and trying to optimize it what we're really talking about is the when we're talking about something good, we're really talking about removing detrimental uh, environmental impact. And so is that a, a similar pattern across the board with many of these things where when you're talking about the ideal phenotypic expression, you're mostly talking about taking away environmental detriments? So I, I think the issue is the following. So for humans in particular, if you even go back like a hundred years, uh, the situation, the, the conditions that most people grew up in would be considered uh, child abuse today. Mm. So if you look at the people that were drafted into the US Army to fight World War I, I think like six or seven years of education was typical. 
So they, they didn't get more than that. They had to go back and work on the farm after some years of schooling, right? And it wasn't required that you attend, you know, several years of high school. Um, so it's relatively easy to identify things which by modern standards would be considered deprivation. So, 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 so as you were saying, big negative environmental effects on the phenotype. And also, like, actually, most people don't realize this, but, you know, um, Americans and especially Europeans around that time 100 years ago were much shorter than they are now. And um, they didn't like maybe they only got meat a few times a week or once a week and, you know, all, all kinds of things. Right. Like, oh, <laughs> no fruit in the winter. Like how much fruit, you know, were you able to get your hands on in the middle of winter? Right. Mm -hmm. In Denmark 100 years ago or something. Right. So. So it's easy to identify. Uh, things that we today would regard as, wow, this is a, if, if a modern kid were subjected to this, we would call it a, a really negative environmental effect, right? Now, there could be things which in the future, like imagine that this is, I have to say this to answer your question, but it is deviating a little bit from the line of conversation. Imagine that we get AI and LLMs really perfected. And every kid now has on their phone or maybe, you know, in their ear or whatever, uh, an AI that is optimized to educate them. Like it really understands like, what are the things you get confused about and what should I drill you on a little bit? How do I coax you mm. into doing those drills? So you can imagine like a totally like superior system of education, which boosts everybody in society inter as far as anybody can measure. Like by the time they're 18, you give them some kind of performance test, cognitive performance test, maybe it boosts everybody 10 IQ points or something because it, it's so optimized for them because it's an AI that's really like their personal tutor. I'm just speculating. Hmm. But somebody in the year 2123 might look back and go like, yeah, those guys, those poor Alex, man, he grew up in that era where everyone was super deprived. No one had a personal AI tutor. Right. And, um, you know, no one had a sleep optimizer which guaranteed optimal sleep for every person every night they got the equivalent of like nine perfect hours of sleep you know so we don't really know what positive environmental interventions are possible to further increase a trait and obviously from our perspective forward would say wow that's a really extravagant luxury only a billionaire could afford that or it's not even technologically possible but it, it could eventually become common and then those people would say Oh, well, of course, we th these guys were massively deprived because they didn't have access to to friendly AIs as they were growing up or something. Right. So yeah. I, I don't know if that helped. Let me just make one more comment about plants. Uh, everything I'm saying about humans is intensely studied by plant genomicists and also genomicists who do animal breeding. Mm -hmm. So the chickens you eat, the milk you drink, um, the corn you eat. All of those things are the subject of the kind of genomic selection actually driven now, increasingly now, using SNP-based, DNA-based genomic predictors of the kind we've introduced into IVF. Those are already in use in agriculture, agricultural breeding for both plants and animals. And, and so um, morphology, one of the things, if you go to a meeting, like the quantitative genetics annual meeting or something, and like that would be one of the meetings where people who work on humans mix with people who work on plants, mix, who mix with people who are working on like chickens and stuff. You walk around the posters and you'll see like the, the corn people are really interested in ear length. Mm. 
like how long, how big is the, the ear of corn, right? Or like leafy, like the morphology of the leaves, like a, in a really hot environment, we want to breed them so that they have these leaves that can protect the, the most valuable part of the plant, you know, as it's grown. So all these things are under study. It, mm. the, the comical part to me, just to get into the non-politically correct aspect of this, is that yeah, let's go. <laughs> the people who are critical of like the, like some people would just say like, oh, humans are special flowers. Nothing about humans is under genetic control. Mm. But then those people are like 100% ignorant of like even the basic agriculture that produced their breakfast. They don't realize like, well, actually no, that isn't how it works. Um, for these agricultural animals, everything is under control of DNA and it's being manipulated <laughs> to our benefit. So uh, it's just funny how ignorant and uneducated people are, who some people are, who are critics of this kind of application of this kind of technology to humans. Um, they literally don't understand the science. It's, it's a little bit like an anti-vaxxer who, you know, just hasn't, hasn't even read any studies or, or maybe pro-vaxxer who hasn't read any studies, but in any case, they haven't read any studies. They don't know what they're talking about. So sorry. Hmm. Well, okay. So let's get into the actual business of, um, genomic prediction then. Um, yep. so obviously a lot of people are, um, are interested in IVF as people are having children at older and older ages. There's no sign of that trend slowing down, um, although it would probably not be at all. If we could figure out how to make it slow down. But in the meantime, uh, IVF is is expected to, you know, have increased demand. And there are a number of diseases. I think there were some, you know, very um, straightforward diseases that people have been screening for for a long time, things like autism, et cetera. But with this technology, that genomic prediction is working on and genetic counseling and other things like that. There are potentially a lot more things that um, couples trying to have children might be interested in screening. What are some of the opportunities that are uh, that are available right now and could be available in the near future? Yeah, so I, I could talk a little bit about the actual product that is available uh, via genomic prediction. And I believe we've now genotyped something like 60 or 70,000 embryos. So it's not, this is a thing which is being done at scale. It's not a, and, and the number is like, you know, doubling every more, maybe more than doubling every year. So um, right now, what our report includes is your genetic risk across about 20 different of the most, 20 of the most impactful different health conditions. Okay, so these would range from type 1 and type 2 diabetes, breast cancer, heart disease, um, even including schizophrenia. Um, and these are mainly chosen because, you know, there's kind of like two parameters that make the condition important. Like, what is the prevalence? Like, what fraction of the population suffers from this at some point in their lives? And what is the life expectancy impact or the life quality impact? of the condition and, and, and like some product of those two things determines whether this is a high priority condition for us to have a good predictor for. And um, so one of the things we can do is we can then take the absolute risks from each of those 20 that are coming from your genome and we can sum up the life expectancy or quality adjusted life expectancy impact of each of those absolute risks 
And then we get an overall health index. And that health index has been shown to predict longevity. So if you, if you take it out of sample and you run it on some people, it, it, it's a decent predictor of like their life expectancy. So um, that's what we have in the report now. Um, I think roughly speaking, if you choose the highest index value out of 10 random embryos, you're gaining something like four plus four quality adjusted life years for your child. And that's the sort of average gain. Mm. The, the tail risk gain, which I think people miss, they, they sort of misunderstand sometimes, is when you have 20 different really impactful conditions, it's not unlikely that at least on one of those conditions, a particular embryo is a negative outlier. So in other words, let's suppose, there's a, we, by, suppose we define negative outlier as being in the top couple percent. How, how many embryos would you normally get from one cycle? This varies enormously because, as you pointed out, it's generally older women that are going through this. So mm. uh, for some, and, you know, obviously this is incredibly emotionally and psychologically difficult process for older couples really who want to have a kid. So there can be couples that literally end up with like only one or two viable embryos. But there are also cases, especially if there's an egg donor and the egg donor is young, that the family could be choosing from actually of order 100 embryos. Mm. So that that's the dynamic range. And of course, the more you're choosing from, the more benefit you have. We right. There are people, especially the sort of high net worth, you know, billionaire type people who they might have 100 embryos frozen. And of course, they're not actually going to have 100 kids. Maybe they're going to have 10 kids, but they're not going to have 100 kids. So to them, it's quite important to characterize like, well, how am I making that decision, right? It's a decision that, which we call the embryo choice problem. Every family that goes through, almost every family, except the unfortunate ones that only get like maybe one viable embryo, everybody else has to make an embryo choice. And so another way to view what we're doing is just giving as much information as possible to the parents to make that selection. And... This will be obviously beneficial for eliminating a lot of, again, detrimental effects on things. Um, I mean, overall, though, could you imagine a scenario where it's not simply couples that are struggling with fertility that are going through this, but everybody is engaging in some kind of embryo screening just as a, yeah. a matter of course? I think if you're a feminist, right, let's suppose you think you know, not everybody's going to agree with this, but let's suppose you think that having a high powered career, mm -hmm. which in the past was only available to men, let's suppose you think that's the most important thing we should be striving for. You know, you want your daughter to be able to get a Harvard MBA and compete for a partnership at Goldman, you know, have a vacation home, you know, on Maui. And of course, like, that person is going to have to maybe delay uh, starting a family because they're very focused on competing with all the jerks at Goldman, mm -hmm. right? Now, if you're a feminist, you might say, wow, how, is, how can this be? Because, you know, men can f happily father a kid when they're 40, right? Sure. Uh, not many women can have a kid naturally at 40. Not many, actually. So... 
In fact, fertility decline starts actually probably in your late 20s. It, it varies by individual, but it starts in your late 20s and it, it's, it's often quite pronounced by your early to mid 30s, which is, which is actually the age at which these professional women are just getting married now today, right? So mm. um, you could argue, let's say you were a super progressive feminist wokester but not retarded, not mentally retarded. I, I, I don't, maybe I just described the empty set, but it's not completely empty. Um, you might say, well, gosh, we should encourage uh, ambitious young women, girl power. We should encourage ambitious young women to freeze eggs mm. when they're 22. Because when you do a cycle and they're 22, you'll get often many tens of eggs. It's much, much more effective, the whole hormonal stimulation, everything is more effective when the woman is young. So maybe the right social policy, and in a way, like this has already been adopted by Apple and Face and Meta and a bunch of like super woke progressive feminist companies. Um, they already do it. Their, their, their health insurance covers this, right? So, so maybe that's the future. So maybe in the future, any woman who doesn't have a hundred embryos or not embryos in this case would be eggs because they haven't found their mate yet. But any woman who doesn't have of order a hundred eggs frozen as she marches off to Harvard Business School and Goldman Sachs would be considered massively deprived by future humans. Yeah, yeah. Disadvantaged. Wow. What an inhuman, what an inhuman Sharia law like society that doesn't allow every woman to have a hundred eggs frozen by the age of 22. That's it's just sick that people mm -hmm. used to live that way. Right. That, that could turn out to be the predominant mode of thought, like one generation from now. Right. Yeah. So, 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 so now, now that you've brought up a, you know, one variant of the political angle on this, um, yeah, I guess I'll get into, you know, some of the detractors of this technology. Yep. Um, so obviously, um, there's, you know, variations on this of, of left and right wing, um, criticisms, I guess, um, there's sort of the left wing criticism, which says, uh, you're a eugenicist that this is eugenics. And I know the E word is like a bad word and we should avoid it, but, uh, that's certainly one criticism. And then another criticism that's sort of from the left is that uh, right now, at least, it's expensive, and so therefore it's classist or elitist. Um, could you just briefly address those two variations? And then I have a third yeah. one that I want to bring up, which is from the right after. Right, right. So, you know, this this term eugenics, um, I don't object to that term. The, the question is just how do you define it, right? Mm. So if I notice something about your DNA that I don't like, and I compel you against your will to be gassed or sterilized, well, I call that evil. And if that's what you define by eugenics, I'm not a eugenicist, I condemn all eugenicists, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. If you say a woman is pregnant, she discovers the, the baby that she's carrying, I, I shouldn't say baby, I'm supposed to say fetus, I guess, or whatever she's carrying, the little creature that's not actually a baby yet, so you can kill it. Um, 
let's suppose she discovers that it has Downs, it's going to have Down syndrome. Okay, and now pretty much every woman in the developed world, I don't know what the penetration is, but it's probably well over 90%, will do a screen during her pregnancy to determine whether the fetus is has an extra chromosome, right? Mm -hmm. And if she says, well, I don't like, so I'm now going to make a decision based on the DNA of the thing that I'm carrying. And overwhelming the decision is to abort it, to kill it. Is that eugenics? I just did something. Now you could say the thing in there has no will, so I didn't do it against its will, but I did make a very radical decision based on the DNA of something. Mm. Is that woman a eugenicist? Because if so, the vast majority of women in developed countries, men and women are eugenicists, right? So that's now we're, now we're getting to a, a slightly different definition of eugenics. If I have 10 embryos and I'm only planning to use one and I just need more information to figure out which one of those 10 I'm going to use and the other nine I'm going to donate to science or something, I was not going to use them anyway. Is that person a eugenicist? You know, I, I think that's a milder. So I'm, I'm going from a very horrific thing like, you know, killing people because something about their DNA you don't like aborting a fetus because something about the DNA you don't like to making a selection that you were going to make anyway, but just having better information to make that selection. So I think we're going to milder and milder versions of what some people would call eugenics, right? Mm. And so when we get to the part that I'm involved in, I would say I can defend it entirely on moral grounds. So can many working philosophers. Um, you might not like it, but when IVF was first developed, the early practitioners of IVF, one of whom is on our scientific advisory board, who was involved uh, with the first, very first babies born through IVF, they were called monsters. They were called Frankenstein doctors. Um, and now it's become totally normalized. So everybody, oh, my cousin had IVF. My daughter has IVF. I've saved some money for her. Great. So I just wouldn't get too excited about what dumb people say about stuff. That's, that's, that's literally my advice because you just look at the historical record. Every time there's a new technology, there are plenty of dumb takes hmm. on it that one generation later are way outside the Over, Overton window or the normative window. Like, wow, I can't believe people felt that way. But, you know, so in a way for me personally, I would say if you develop a new thing, a new technology, which helps people in re say the reproduction, the, the, in reproduction, you might very well be criticized by some <laughs> dim-witted people, uh, but it's kind of par for the course. If, you, if mm. what you're doing is not a, a gigantic improvement or change in the way people do things, uh, you, you know, I mean, if it is, then you can fully expect to be criticized by at least some vocal minority of people. So that, that's kind of my take on the eugenics angle. The other thing you were asking about is, is it going to exacerbate class differences? Um, yes, it probably will. And it's the same thing with, say, early computers or mobile phones. Like only the rich had them for a while. But then gradually, economics works in such a way that the cost drops and it becomes available to everyone. It's also true that, you know, I, I'm not a right wing guy, so I actually am not against some level of wealth transfer or resources transfer to 
the less uh, fortunate portions of our society. So if we decided to add egg freezing and IVF to our national healthcare system, mm-hmm. which some countries already do, I would say that's great. I would not complain about that at all. And notice now we're not creating inequality because we're making these technologies available to everyone. Well, so, would you yeah, even would you even argue that it's not even properly classified as a wealth transfer if you're if you're if you're creating enough value in terms of healthier babies for the society, right? Uh, in a way, yeah. you're just you're just it's just a net gain, right? If you take a long-term view, so in the short term, you are giving some resources to somebody who maybe couldn't afford to do the procedure themselves in the Mm. short run. But in the long run, which I think we should adopt at least a medium long run view of this. Yeah. You're helping society as a whole. You're, you're, you're actually improving the wealth generation, innovation, pro-social aspects of the next generation of kids by doing this stuff, Mm. the health of and longevity of the next generation of kids. So uh, yeah, it's all, it's not, maybe not even a wealth transfer. Maybe it's a solid investment. It's like taking the lead out of the water right. of people who live in poor neighborhoods. Like who would be against that? Even, even your most right-wing nut job would be, would probably not be against that. Okay. And there's a, there's a right-wing argument that I wanted you to just briefly address, um, which is, I, I think a little fuzzier, but they will make, um, you know, especially a lot of the trad types, um, certain Christian conservatives, they will make sort of a moralistic argument that that, 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 that there just has to be something inherently wrong um, about intervening in this way. You're playing God or something along those lines. Um, I mean, I think I can imagine your response, but please, if you would. No, I'm happy to give it. Um, first of all, uh, I just want to point out that, you know, my mom is a devout Christian. And uh, I was raised uh, as a Methodist. So I, I went to Methodist Sunday school and church growing up. So mm. I'm fully, I fully understand the religious point of view on these things. Um, more than most people, certainly more than 90% of college professors. And uh, they have a point. So like, it's totally self-consistent. It might not be factually correct, but it's totally self-consistent to say, I believe God creates a new soul for every new human that's created, that's produced in reproduction. And the soul enters the body at the same time, the sperm enters, (laughs) enters the cell, the egg cell might be true. Mm. Right. Um, And therefore abortion is bad. Making lots of embryos that aren't going to be allowed to enjoy lives is bad. Right. So that's a totally self-consistent position for those people to take. There's nothing like you could say like, well, science says, I I don't remember science ever saying anything about the soul. Like it's very hard for me to do an experiment on the soul. Right. So um, science doesn't actually say anything. Like it's actually a belief, like maybe it's true. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, and a more subtle argument from the right is just you're dehumanizing people by measuring these things or predicting these things about them and then making choices a is better than b and it's a a slippery slope toward the degradation of the human uh individual by doing this i I accept that too so to me this is all just a personal choice of well 
okay, I understand your thing about the soul. I'm still going to let Jane do it, have an abortion if she wants to have an abortion. I, I don't know what to say. Like people should come down where they feel comfortable on that question. And similarly, there might be some country that says like, you know what? We are 100% outlawing embryo selection in this country. In fact, we're even going to outlaw IVF and we've already outlawed abortion. Good for you. I mean, if, you know, if, if the people in that country really feel that way, that's their choice. That's their choice for how to organize society. I might not agree with it, but I actually, you know, I, I actually, it's kind of funny. I think the right wing position is at least internally consistent. The left wing position is actually not even coherent. They generally don't understand the science when they, when they're like spewing out, oh, eugenics is bad, but I want my daughter to marry a really healthy, tall, look, good looking guy. Like what, what? Like, what are, you, what are you talking about? <laughs> so anyway, um, so I think I answered your question. Yeah. So, so the right wing is making it on different grounds, basically. And yes. So they have sort of a stronger leg to stand on in that regard. And if you're leaving it up to personal choice, I guess this is where I wanted to get into the elements of this that is somewhat uh, political or somewhat concerned about policy. Are there regulatory or policy barriers to doing this right now uh, in the United States? And if so, what are they? In the United States, there's quite a lot of freedom to introduce new methodology into IVF. Mm -hmm. So that is not a barrier for what we're doing. The main barrier comes from earlier, I was talking about uh, how improving the predictors is data limited. And so like, if you did want to get to the point where you could do cognitive ability or personality traits, like say you wanted your, to ensure that your kid is not a depressive, like that the kid, you know, would score high on a general happiness index, right? Mm -hmm. For those kind of cognitive behavioral traits, there is just flat out a huge battle or conflict over whether the government will fund or allow the science and the collection of data necessary to build those predictors. And currently mm -hmm. we're just stuck. There's basically very little progress in um, government funded, you know, all the, all the government funded biobanks. And by, by now, like there, there are dozens of countries around the world that have them. Almost all of them are very either, either by inattention or because of deliberate, uh, counteraction by sort of activists, uh, they're not generally collecting these behavioral and cognitive phenotypes. So you have a bunch of data oh, where like, oh yeah, even... I'm very good at like figuring out who had a heart attack, mm -hmm. but I'm not at all good at figuring out who had, you know, uh, who had low IQ or, you know, whatever, what their IQs were or whether they had, uh, depression and stuff like that. Okay. So depression, you might, sorry, depression, you might be able to get, but, but general, there's no like effort to get the big five personality scores and stuff like that. So my understanding is that, uh, there's a dearth of population wide healthcare data available in places like the United States and Germany, mostly because of privacy laws, right? Very strong privacy protections. But you're saying that even in places like the UK, for example, where they have population wide biobank, there's just not an interest in these cognitive traits. And that's the core issue. Yeah. You don't need full population coverage. Like if you can get like the biggest biobanks that people are analyzing right now are of order a million people. Mm -hmm. So you, you only need like if a big country, you have 1% of your population in the biobank, that would be huge. Right. 
for the United States or China or something. And the issue is not that. The, the issue is not privacy. The, the issue no. is if you, right. if you want to study the heritability of cognitive ability or the ability or try to build predictors for cognitive ability, people are going to come after you. And if you um, are, are advocating to NIH or UK Biobank or various places that they aggressively collect cognitive scores uh, for their cohort, you'll get a lot of pushback, a lot of sensitivity. Um, mm -hmm. People will just attack you like, well, why are you interested in that? What You must be a very bad person, right? Right. We might even apply the E word to you or the R word or, you know, whatever. So this particular avenue of science, genetic science is very, very, uh, it, 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 it's basically been stopped cold by left-wing activism and just left, left-leaning feelings even of, of other scientists. Is there anywhere where they are making good progress on this? I mean, is China any better? So there, there, it's not that they're actually concerned so much about this. They might, they might be concerned because they could get criticized by their Western colleagues a little bit. Uh, but mainly, it's just inattention that they, they just haven't gotten around to it. Uh, I don't want to say too much about this because I'm actually involved with um, work in East Asia with very large biobanks. Mm -hmm. And um, if I were to bet and say like, oh, 20 years from now, and unfortunately, that is like the time scale or 10 or 20 years from now. When will we see, you know, well, cognitively phenotyped cohorts of, say, over a million people? Um, there's a good chance it'll happen first in East Asia. Okay. Okay, I think that's uh, enough of an answer <laughs> for now. Um, so I want to move on to some of your other projects because you're also, you know, in addition to the work with... Um, uh, with genomic prediction, you're also sort of an expert, uh, in machine learning, you know, genomic prediction is obviously involving a lot of machine learning, but you also have a new startup, super focus AI, <clears throat> which is trying to take advantage of really this proliferation of large language models. Um, and just to set the stage for our conversation, so you know where I'm at, uh, I've been working with large language models in my day job uh, almost exclusively since about mid-June. Prior to that, I was not an AI developer. I had some interest in AI and I had studied it a little bit on my own, um, but I have been working with them pretty much full-time um, and almost exclusively with them since about mid-June. So I'm like relatively well-versed in LLMs, I think, <laughs> uh, at yeah. this point. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit about what um, Superfocus AI is, is working on and what innovation in the space do you think uh, is needed? Yeah, great. Um, we're gonna, we'll, we'll have a great conversation. Um, so the problem that we set out to solve uh, at Superfocus, uh, I think the most accessible way to describe it is an LLM you could think of as analogous to the language and to some extent, the reasoning center in, in your brain. Okay, so it's good at language. It understands human language, and it can do some kinds of reasoning uh, and getting better all the time. Hmm. But the 
in order for it to be good at language, it had to see a lot of training data, like the way that it was built, as you know, uh, so that it would optimize an objective function, which is uh, determined by next word prediction, quality of next word prediction, next token prediction. Um, it saw a lot of stuff to just understand the, the, the concepts that occur in human language and build like, uh, in a sense, a kind of compressed representation of the concept space of human language. But it would be nice if somebody could come along and couple, connect mm. to the LLM, a separate memory resource. Just as in your brain, if you introspect, Alex, about like the following, like I say to you, hey, Alex, hey, remember when we went out for a drink with Razib? Mm. The part of your brain, there's a part of your brain that's like, what is Steve talking about? I'm hearing sounds from his lips. And then, and then like that part of your brain says, oh, he's asking about Razib. That's a little concept that we went out for a drink. Um, oh, is that that crazy bar that didn't have any dark beer? So Steve was pissed off. Um, well, actually, I jumped ahead there. But anyway, there are these, these, these primitives just in the question, Razib, right. bar, last time. Mm. Okay. But then your brain is drawing from memory, which is not actually in the language center of your brain, it's somewhere else. And it's pulling information, which is relevant to those concepts that got identified from the query. Mm -hmm. And then something is happening where then the memory information is being presented to the language center of your brain, which then formulates a response. And like among the stuff that was dredged up was like, oh yeah, Steve was pissed off because they didn't have any dark beer or Razib's co-founder came and sat down with us and she told us all about her crazy like oxygen tent that she sleeps in or something. Yeah. Right. You, something pulls all that shit up and that stuff wasn't drawn from the language center itself. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what we're building at Superfocus, we're engineering AIs, which have at least one big generative LLM inside, but also some smaller ones that perform more specialized tasks. Mm -hmm and attached memory, which our customer gets to specify, they, 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 they decide what to load in that memory and what is loaded in that memory is treated by the generative model as ground truth. So that um, to give you an application for us, like we're working with call centers and we can take the employee training manual for mm -hmm. that call center and stick it in the memory of our AI. And then it can basically answer any question that uh, is answered by the material in the training manual. Like, oh, I'm dropping my uh, T-Mobile sub subscription. It's the 15th of the month. How much of my, how much money do I get back? Like, you know, or what or, or how do I what steps do I need to go through to do number portability so I can move my new number over to boost mobile. Mm. Right. So a human might, even a really good call center person might have trouble like immediately re re recollecting like, oh, what is our policy on that? What is the process for doing this? But the AI will just surf, the AI will give you a perfect answer immediately, but it shouldn't be trying to source that base knowledge from its language training corpus because it saw a bunch of people writing about like, I was so pissed off because T-Mobile did this to me or I, I don't like Boost Mobile. Because, but Maybe the, the, the thing that 
T-Mobile that he saw on Reddit was discussed about T-Mobile's policies for when you leave the, the, the plan. Maybe that was the policy six months ago or a year ago, and it's no longer their policy. Or maybe it's just completely wrong what some dude wrote on Reddit. Mm. So you don't want your customer service AI relying on all the shitty training data trillion tokens that OpenAI used. You want yeah. it to have a crisp source of base knowledge, which is kind of like your memory. Like you, you, you remember like, oh yeah, we went to that bar in Austin and Steve, blah, blah, blah. Right. So that, that's, that's what we're trying to do at Superfocus. Okay. And there's I... a lot of, a lot of engineering around this, but the, but the basic concept is we're, we're attaching a memory to the LLM. Mm -hmm. So it was interesting to me when I first heard that you guys were working on this and looked into it was because uh, I have been following George Hotz a lot lately. Um, he's got his own AI startup, uh, Tiny Grad, and they're working on, you know, hardware and, you know, optimizing um, running models on different chips. It's beyond my yep. pay grade, but he was describing this exact same problem and saying that there's this issue where right now, everything that the model knows about the world is implicit in its weights and biases. And that's yep. not how the human brain works at all. We have yep. memory and then we have inference and the inference and the memory are compartmentalized. <laughs> and so you're basically saying that the technology you're working on is going to do the same thing where an organization might take, you know, their own private, you know, proprietary data set and then tell the model, okay, this is what's absolutely true. All this other stuff that, you know, is just for uh, doing inference and doing logic and doing other operations that you have to perform. But if there's ever a contradiction between this stuff that you've learned previously and this memory store that you have, the memory store rules out every time. Is that essentially what exactly. you're trying to do? Exactly. Imagine, Alex, I hire you tomorrow mm. to be my customer service rep uh, at T-Mobile. And let's say you yourself were a T-Mobile customer for years going back. So you're like, oh, this is a great job because I, I love T-Mobile. I've been a T-Mobile user for, you know, five years. So you come in and um, some guy calls in and says, hey, God damn it, I, you know, I'm leaving T-Mobile and uh, blah, 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 blah. And um, are you guys going to refund? And, you know, I, I signed up under this special deal and what happens? And, you know. and you might remember like, oh, yeah, I signed up under a special promo deal like that, too. And this is what they did for me. But you're going to privilege what's in the goddamn employee training manual that they gave you when they hired you and trained you over what you remember happening to you three years ago under similar circumstances. You know, you're supposed to, you're told what's in this training manual. These are our current policies. So when you answer people's questions, use what's here, not what you experienced mm -hmm. three years ago as a T-Mobile subscriber yourself. So it's exactly analogous to that. Like you, you, you need ba you need a prioritized corpus of base knowledge that you can force the model you can force Alex, the human, to privilege this stuff, not what you remember from the past. Even though what you remember from the past made you you, made you able to make a little joke to the caller, understand their Spanish accent or whatever it is. But but the point is, like, for these facts, for these things, this is your knowledge base. Forget about all the shit you, you learned before in training your inference engine. Right. And then so. Uh, so. So. 
a lot of the primary selling point of this is getting rid of hallucination, which is a well-known problem with these models. They make yep. stuff up. They mash things together that don't belong together. It's a yep. big problem. I mean, I'm working on stuff right now where it's like getting the model to like not do that is, you know, a, a, a lot of time. Um, and you're claiming that you can get hallucination in some cases down to 0% or 100% accuracy on certain yep. data sets. Yep. And that's, is that simply by enforcing this rule? So the testing that we did early on, by the way, we, we started this company before ChatGPT came out. So we, we, we were kind of, I, I and my co-founder knew enough about LLMs and large language models and all this other stuff that we knew this was going to be a fundamental problem. As long as you train the model using next word prediction, uh, it's going to have a confabulation or hallucination problem because it's not trained to be factual. It's trained to be, to generate plausible responses, right? Mm. That, that look like the training data. So the very first thing we did with our architecture is we took textbooks, college textbooks, and we inserted them as the memory. And then we took the chapter questions, like say the subject is U.S. history. And we took chapter questions from either from that textbook or from some other textbook on U.S. history. And we just asked the model, okay, can you answer these questions correctly? And, and we could get to 99% conformance to what was in the, the memory. So if, if, the, if, the, if that textbook didn't talk about the number of cannons at the Battle of Shiloh, the model will say, I don't know how many cannons, I don't, you know. So we, we could get very good adherence to what's in the memory corpus and very good retrieval from what's in the memory corpus. Um, and so at that point we realized, okay, this is, you know, very commercially valuable. Mm. Um, the architecture uses, as I mentioned earlier, multiple LLMs. So it, it, the LLM, which does the retrieval, which breaks apart logically the query, the LLM, which does error correction on the proposed answer by the big model, all of these things are, you know, they require quite a lot of engineering to get right. Um, and yes, we, we, we can get to sort of 99%, you know, accuracy and adherence to the corpus now. So I wanted to ask you about a technique for yep. uh, doing this, which sounds like your your um, combination of models might already be doing this. But Martin Shkreli is building a uh, an AI doctor called Doctor Gupta, and um, he does Doctor Gupta know about this? <laughs> I'm not sure, but that's what they're calling it. Uh, I think there was a lawsuit anyway. Um, Maybe they could they can just spell it Dr. G O O P A. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I don't know. They 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 work something out, but uh suffice to say, uh, Martin was doing a stream where he was talking about this again, the hallucination problem. And he said that one technique that they're using that has really improved the accuracy of their model, of course, if you're giving health advice, you can't have it making stuff up. It needs to be, you know, highly accurate. Um was introspection and introspection is sounds like it's one of the one of the steps in your process uh he described it as uh we we have the model generate an answer it has a cited source then you run it through another model again uh to say okay what's the diff between this answer that you just gave me and the source that you cited it from right and yep. it does that multiple times 
until yep. you know it reaches some you know minimum threshold. Yeah. Uh, so that's one of the techniques that you're employing as well. Yeah. So it, in a way, like it's funny because uh, I know some of the OpenAI founders, and um, when we were doing this again pre-ChatGPT, we we were we were telling them like hallucination is not going to be solved in a straightforward way. They were saying at the time before GPT-4 came out. They were saying, oh, the next next biggest the next bigger model will not hallucinate because it'll just be smarter or something. And I said, no, it's it, this is in, intrinsic to the next word prediction method you're using to build these models is never going to overcome that. Right. And um, now they agree with me. But at, at the time, <clears throat> uh, they didn't. Um, so most of the attention and most of the resources in the AI world are going toward, oh, must build bigger foundation model will big build bigger foundation model. But as I just said, that's not going to fully solve. It'll improve somewhat yeah. the, 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 the situation, but it won't fully solve the problem. And it also will never let you be able to like, oh, today T-Mobile changed its policy. Uh, I better roll that out right now because yeah. when people call Time to retrain new... my 100 billion per yeah. model. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just like if you, if you were the call center guy or the doctor, and I said, hey, Alex, you know what? FDA just said, we this drug is no good. We can't prescribe it anymore. Don't prescribe it to anyone from now on. Like we just got to, you know, the FDA ruling this morning. You would just update on that, right? Mm. But if you have to retrain the whole model, the foundation model to understand, oh, now FDA doesn't allow that. Well, good luck with that. Good, That's a pretty cumbersome way to do things, right? So you need a you need an updatable dynamic memory that you can just change. And then the AI changes its behavior based on what you did to the memory state. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, the, the, the remark that I was going to make is that all the attention, like that most of the unicorns in the space who get the super high valuations and can raise hundreds of millions are just like, I'm going to build the next big foundation model and, you know, and great. And, but from our perspective, huge amount of value will be unlocked by just better engineering you know and again we're using multiple llms and stuff and there's there's lots of engineering uh that requires a deep understanding of how the models work and testing and software design and you know like old school software which can do automated prompt engineering you know there, there's there's a lot of stuff in there that yeah it's just distinct from model training Right. Model training is just like some giant like neural net optimization problem. Right. It's just totally yeah. different from the engineering kinds of things that we have to solve at Superfocus. So it's just like two different parts of the industry, which are, you know, they're, they're obviously uh, very both very important for the advancement of AI. But we kind of feel like our area is a little bit neglected, like we can't get the same valuations from investors that a foundation model company can. But ultimately, like we might be faster to pretty huge scalable revenue than some of those guys. And we actually yeah, can see enough competition. You know this, I'm sure, from your day-to-day -day work. There's enough competition now between Claude and GPT and ChatGPT and um, Llama and all these other models that we actually mm -hmm. feel pretty confident that we're, we're now like a buyer. We get to choose which foundation models to use and and we actually think for a lot of the things we're doing we're going to be able to go to fully open source so um 
it's to me, I think a lot of the bets on these foundation model startups are not going to pay off. Like uh, they're going to be huge write downs uh, potentially. Uh, but some handful of companies like ours that are doing this in the weeds engineering to build, to deliver the first enterprise scalable 99 plus percent reliable narrow AI, that's going to be incredibly valuable because like, oh, every call center worker, you know, call center work is 8% of the GDP of the Philippines. And if you can capture 1% of that, you know, you can capture, you know, instead of that 8%, you capture 1% of that value is being done by AIs. That's, you know, billions of dollars, right? So, mm. um, so my viewpoint, yeah, Martin Shkreli, <laughs> say what you want about him, is not a dumb guy. And so- Oh, we're big fans we of Martin. Also, if Martin wants to come on the show, he's invited anytime. Yeah, he's definitely an interesting guy mm. and a clever guy. So we, we also are looking at the medicine side of this because obviously like the textbook that I put as memory for the thing could be mm. in medical school textbooks or, you know, the equivalent, right? And um, the problem with that particular space is that the barrier to entry, the, 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 the penalty for being wrong is super high and the level of trust that you're going to have to build before people allow you to deploy is quite high. Whereas some of the things that I talked about, like call center work or, you know, there are other examples where those problems are not going to stop deployment. We're going to deploy very fast in the next few years. And, but, but eventually we'll circle back probably. And we'll, we'll see, we'll see whether our team's better than Martin's team. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess the, the, the race is on. Yeah. Um, so you told me in the beginning of this that, uh, I could ask you about anything. And so I'm going to ask you about something that's a little bit, uh, probably unusual for you to get these days, just because it's a little bit, um, dated. Um, but it's sort of relevant given um, our mutual connection to Michigan State University. And that is, I wanted to ask you about the drama that happened several years ago um, involving you and, um, you know, the Graduate Student Union. Um, you were formerly the VP of Research and Graduate Studies at Michigan State University. And you were asked to step down by then President Stanley. Um, and so... I wanted to just ask you, you know, now that you're have some distance on that, that whole affair, um, what was your perspective on the situation while it was happening? How was it received by the students? And, um, you know, where, where is the university at now? Has it, has it improved along those axes? Why did that happen to you in the first place? Do you think, and, um, how has your relationship been going forward? Uh, how much time do you have? <laughs> I mean, I, you, you, I guess you don't have to answer all of them, you know, exhaustively <laughs> right now, but I'm, I'm happy to go into it. I just want to warn you that it, it's a complicated story. I'm happy to give you the story, but it's a little bit complicated. So, um, so I guess, I guess maybe just... just give me the, the gist of what went down and yeah. sort of your takeaway from it. And then, um, I would, I, I mean, really, I'm asking this question because I want to know about the current state of the university. Okay. And got it. So there, this was the summer of Floyd and hmm. people may have forgotten now what the like zeitgeist was during the summer of Floyd, but 
a lot of radical left groups took that opportunity to try to make gains on issues that they cared about. And so in this case, the GEU, which really was actually the guy, I think the people running their tweet thread, which is where these attacks started, you're really talking about just a few people. Mm -hmm. I could even name the people, but I won't. Um, so they just started attacking me, calling me a eugenicist and stuff like this. And it's kind of comical because in some of their tweet threads, they, they would actually cite like some blog post I had written or some interview I had given as evidence that I was a racist or something like this. And in almost every case, like it, it, they actually showed like a limited reading comprehension ability. Like they couldn't actually understand what I was saying in the blog post and they mischaracterized it. Or maybe, mo maybe I don't know if this is more favorable to them, but maybe they did understand, but they just deliberately distorted it because they're intellectually dishonest. But I actually mm -hmm. think it's more the former than the latter. And um, so anyway, so they started this attack on me and then, um, you know, with some allies in, you know, on the left, uh, on, among the faculty, they started a petition. I think there were a couple of petitions, like trying to like asking President Stanley to fire me or that I had to resign or something like this. Right. So that's what happened. Now, at the time, um, all corporate leaders and university leaders were just terrified because they, they thought like there's this weird wave coming over the country and I don't want to get smushed by it. Most people that are in really senior leadership roles at a university or in a corporation are basically quasi sociopathic careerists. So basically like they're, they're trying to advance their own career. Very few of them care about the, the, the core mission of the university. It's mainly about, they, 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 of course, they'll never admit this. Like you would never get to that position. Mm. Unless we're able to convincingly talk about how I am not a sociopath. I actually, it's not about me and my uh, large salary. It's more about the values of Michigan State or something. They're all going to be really good at saying stuff like that. But actually, in fact, having been in that role for eight years mm. and observing the deans and the other VPs and the president and the provost, it's more, it's more the, it's more on the sociopathic side than on the core value side. Yeah. They're, they're sort of creatures of the system, right? Yes. That they have to climb yes. through to get to that point in the first yes, place. There's exactly. a selection. It's, it's not, it's not surprising, right? Mm. What, what is surprising that you could have like a guy like me who like, I told the president who hired me was a different president, Luana K. Simon. Um, mm. I told her, I said, look, I don't know how long I'm going to last in this job because I'm not about bullshitting. And um, you hired me to improve the status of Michigan State as a world leading research university, like not the bullshit low value stuff that we do. You hired me to raise our research expenditures from 450 million a year to 700 million a year, get the fastest growth of any school in the Big Ten during my era. Mm. Um, bringing us to the near the top in the whole country of, of schools that don't have a like a huge medical research complex we were among the top we were close to berkeley and and other schools at that stage so anyway you, you can't do that without making enemies so i was constantly fighting with the dean saying like well this faculty member you're trying to promote to full professor doesn't have a strong research record why are you trying to promote them you know or you want a retention package for this lady, but this lady's research is not very good. Why are you, I'm not contributing to that research, the retention package, right? So on every week, I'm fighting a little battle where I'm the guy trying to make the university better according mm -hmm. to, you know, the core values of like quality of research, you know, um, you know, um, contribution to human knowledge, you know, stuff like that, which like 
most of the time they're just trying to keep the students happy and I hope the football team wins and stuff like this, right? So the, the, the fraction of people who are really like uh, focused on these kind of more abstract goals like I was is very small. And so I, I told the president, I told President Stanley, I said, look, I'm going to be making a lot of enemies doing this, which is what you want, which is what she wants, right? She wanted to bring in this guy who was a bulldog, an actual a physicist mm. who would have to poke his nose in when the College of Social Science was trying to promote some, you know, not very good faculty member. And then I would be the one who would butt heads with the dean and say, because I reviewed all those cases. I reviewed almost 150 cases, promotion cases a year within the university for eight years. And during that time, there was never any allegation of racism or sexism or badness from anybody. Okay. And I had 650 people reporting up to me, like mm. people, you know, who ran the core facilities, the gene editing lab, you know, the accelerator lab, you know, all these people reported up to me. Nobody ever said like, oh, Steve's a racist, Steve is a sexist. It's all, it's all BS, right? So, but anyway, so then there was, there was this attack on me and there were plenty of faculty who were in the fields that in a sense by President Simon's, you know, priority scheme and my priority scheme were low quality and they were getting starved of resources. We were not giving resources to shitty departments and bad programs. We were giving resources to the programs which really were important for the future of Michigan State and building up the research capability, et cetera, et cetera. So, so if you're controlling resources in an organization, you're going to have friends and you're going to have enemies. Mm -hmm. Okay, the Enemies are going to sign that petition. Okay. The high quality faculty, the ones who get big research grants and are going to get into the National Academy, they were all signing the petition supporting me. If you look at the credentials of the people who signed the support petition for me, it, it's like a 10x relative to the people who signed the other petition, right? Mm -hmm. you had, for, on my side, you had people like Steve Pinker, former dean of Harvard Medical School, Sam Altman, CEO of OpenAI. All these people signed my petition, right? So any, any reasonable person who just looks at this would say like, okay, this is a case where some leftist low quality mob put down a guy who was trying to do the right thing for the university. So that's kind of the story. Um, uh, is it better now? So I think the, the mood that summer was a transient, right? It was because of the George Floyd thing that, that kind of hit this peak, right? And we had rioting all across the United States and all that mm. stuff. So that transient is gone. And there's more back reaction against it. So some people, you know, these um, otherwise dull Republicans and stuff who were kind of asleep, like yeah. have kind of woken up and said like, oh, shoot, we, we should probably push back on some of this crazy stuff that's happening, like in our universities or whatever. So so at least a little bit of that is happening. Um, so that's in a way you could say that's the good news. But the bad news is all kinds of decisions that Stanley took, including asking me to resign at that time are still playing out. So he, he, like every other university, appointed a DEI czar. Mm -hmm. And once you appoint that czar with his or her staff, they have to prove their, like, you They're know. like a blood. cancer that just grows and takes over. Yeah. Every, every, parts of the body. every unit. 
yeah, every unit in a big organization is 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 generally trying to grow and grab more resources and and and, and demonstrate why. Yeah, but the, the difference is the, the the DEI apparatus doesn't have an alternative mission to invest its resource. Like its its only goal is to gain more control over the other departments, whereas yeah. the other departments yeah. actually have stuff to do. <laughs> so we have like on the negative side, I would say we have now in the tenure and promotion process that I used to oversee for eight years, I oversaw that process at the university. Um, we now have a diversity component. So before the classical uh, rubric for judging whether a professor should be granted tenure or promoted to full professor, whatever, would be research, teaching, and service. Okay. And at really good universities and under my regime, <laughs> research was by far the biggest. Like, mm -hmm. you know, are you actually a world-class scholar in your field? I don't care what the field is. It could be medieval history. Okay. It doesn't have to be neuroscience or something, whatever it is. If, are you a world-class researcher? Is Michigan State proud of what you're accomplishing and your future prospects is there? Uh, and then teaching, are you a competent teacher? Are you doing a good job? And service would be like stuff you do in the department and stuff like that. So now added in there is a bunch of DEI rubrics. Like, are you fostering diversity through your research? Now, we're the number one department for nuclear physics in right. the United States. We have a billion dollar <laughs> Department of Energy research facility, accelerator laboratory, which was built under my administration i think we just got 400 million more for uh f for frib frib is it right so frib yeah. is the leading facility for that kind of uh rare isotope beams right so that kind mm -hmm. of research in nuclear physics and now you're going to go to the guy who okay what does he do i build the detector that detects electrons that are sprayed out from these nuclear collisions at frib that's my research. And I, we do all kinds of machine learn. I design the electronics and I, I do the machine learning to like denoisify the signal that comes out. You know, I do all this stuff. Now I have to write an essay in order to be promoted from assistant to associate professor. I have to write an essay about how my work building this detector furthers the interests of diversity, equity, and inclusion hmm. on the Michigan state campus. And the whole thing is just a shambles because, because like in eight years supervising this thing, there was already conceptual difficulty of like, well, what, how much research is enough research? How would I justify that my teaching is good enough? Uh, well, how much service do I have to do? Does, does, um, does uh, giving outreach talks, does that count as service? Uh, mentoring, you know, uh, this Boy Scout troop, does that count as service? You know, the the criteria are already complicated enough and now like i'm supposed to like the, the faculty committees and stuff are supposed to decide like well i don't know joe the plant biologist i just don't think he's done enough for diversity those plants are all green did you ever notice that they're all green i don't yeah. see any color green among these plants i don't think he i think it's against this guy's secretly anti-diversity mm -hmm. let's not promote him so if you want to like, uh, are things better? In some sense, the zeitgeist is better and there's some pushback against craziness, but at a core institutional level, 
things have been enacted which are going to be very hard to reverse mm. the coming decades. So that that's my answer. So, <laughs> yeah, I guess the takeaway is that there's not really been a fundamental structural change that would need to Well, happen. there is because now we have a DEI czar and we've well, embedded in the I, actual I meant, formal, yeah. formal requirements for faculty promotion, mm. privileged DEI as one of the core, core activities that all faculty members must participate in. Yeah. So it's been, there's been a change, but not in the direction you'd hope for. Um, no, well, I think it's crazy. No, no. Okay. Let me just, let me steal man the other side. Okay. The other side say like, well, of course science is racist. Cause look, it's all white guys doing the science. Oh, you. I guess Steve isn't white. <laughs> Corey Washington's not white either. But anyway, it's, it's all white. Don't look at those people. It's mm. all white guys. And so clearly science is racist. And the number one thing we can do is to fight that racism in science and higher ed by implementing these DEI, uh, you know, yeah. Maoist, uh, Maoist uh, campaigns. Oh, I mean, uh, uh, DEI policies. So, so that's the the other side of it. And well, Steve, I'm don't sure you see that are... you're, you're fostering inclusion of more subatomic particles that may be discovered? <laughs> yes. yes. And I think Pluto, I think Pluto needs to be readmitted as a planet. Like, yeah, exactly. I think it's very very diversity. It's very sizest to exclude Pluto. Mm. Um, so it's been a pleasure talking with you. Um, I think we could go on much longer if, if we uh, had the time. But uh, I'm sure you have other things to do today. Before I let you go, though, um, where can people find you, find more of the work that you're doing, and what can they look forward to in the near future? So uh, I'm on Twitter. So HS, you, you'll, you can put this in the show notes, but I'm on Twitter. Everything will be in the show notes. I have a podcast and I have a blog. Um, and uh, lately I haven't been blogging that much because Twitter just, or X, just sucks yeah. you in because you get so much, much more immediate feedback that you tend to like put your thoughts into X than writing uh, a longer blog post, which I would have done like 10 years ago. So, but um, anybody who's interested in what I'm doing is, is, is welcome to look in those places. And um, it's really been fun talking to you, Alex. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you so much for coming on. Yep.